What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of After School Program, the podcast where we talk with young, successful adults about how they navigate their lives and careers after school. I'm Connor Hine, and with me is my good friend, Zach McHale. Our guest today is Ariana Rahack. Ariana is the co-founder and CEO of the virtual events company, Matchbox Virtual Media. Originally a team of four, Matchbox quickly had to scale the company as the demand for virtual events exploded during the pandemic. In this episode, we talk about how Ariana created Matchbox, scaling from four to 50 employees within eight months, how Matchbox maintained their company culture as they grew, how to use virtual events to bring associations together, dealing with survivor's guilt while the company was having success during the pandemic, her time as a financial assistant, and crossing the chasm. Here she is, Ariana Rahack. Thanks a ton for coming on the podcast, Ariana. We really appreciate having you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, so I guess, could you start off with telling us a little bit about Matchbox Virtual and your role there? Yes. So uh, Matchbox, uh, we started just over two years ago, and it is a virtual conference production company. Um, so as you can imagine, we definitely uh, started in the right thing at the right time. Mm -hmm. uh, we were uh, four co-founders that started this together. So my role is uh, CEO. And uh, the reason for starting Matchbox, uh, previously I was running an organization that was a digital publication and online community for leaders of associations. Mm -hmm. And um, that community was really my job uh, to build the community, build up the, the readership of the publication. And it kind of stumbled upon uh, this approach to bringing together um, the, the community to co-create knowledge, basically. So the way these conferences were set up, they were designed to be uh, interactive conversations where we had attendees who were kind of contributing their own input. And we had this whole system that we had developed around uh, pulling the biggest insights from those conversations and turning them into eBooks, articles, uh, et cetera, that were uh, going back into the publication. And so mm -hmm. I became very, very passionate about this whole kind of methodology and concept. And so I uh, started Matchbox, uh, which was basically bringing this methodology and starting to work with, uh, actually, our audience base were associations. So they wound up being our first client base uh, because this was something that they might be interested in bringing to their members. Okay. Uh, yeah. And how did you go about getting your other co-founders to start it up? Like who, whose idea was it? And how did you guys come together? So um, it was it was my uh, my idea, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. In in the previous organization, at first, actually, I was uh, it was an organization of one. I was uh, hired by uh, a, a chairman, basically, uh, to to run this publication and online community. It was kind of meant to be this lost leader. He ran uh, he owned several technology companies, and so this was like this education uh, wing slash organization. So mm -hmm. I was running this, uh, and then. I as these virtual conferences that we were doing started to really pick up, uh, we hired uh, at that, at a certain point, it was a team of, um, of four or five uh, who were employees of this. And, uh, and actually the reason for starting Matchbox, originally there was a, a co-founder, my, um, my business partner, Graham, um, and he started, uh, we met actually at a conference. So I'm, I'm a big fan of face-to-face -face conferences as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we sat down and we just kind of realized that we had uh, a lot of shared passion and interest. And so we, we kept in touch. And uh, when, I, when I brought this concept to him, he was really excited. So he came on board. And then um, immediately what, uh, a, 
a third came on board. We were just chatting and he was in the video gaming industry and he saw a lot of parallels and he got really excited. And it was this whirlwind. Two weeks later, he was on board. Um, and then our fourth really saw how to take our technology and transfer, uh, or sorry, take our methodology and transfer into technology. Okay. So uh, he came on board kind of with that focus. So at this point, the four of us kind of have different areas where we're, uh, where we're managing. So uh, that fourth one, for example, he's very focused on um, building a, a technology platform that kind of brings our methodology and um, uh, scales it. Right. Yeah. And so when I think virtual conferences, I think, you know, Zooms with different panelists and hosts, I guess, could you break down kind of how your conferences are run or the different types of them? Absolutely. Um, so I, I will say that uh, we we ended up pivoting. We had this very specific methodology that we were honing in on. And um, our use case was working with uh, uh, primarily associations where they were facing a major uh, industry challenge. Uh, so the best example in our first year of business, we worked with uh, several CPA, Certified Public Accountant Associations, that uh, partnered together because their profession has been dealing with a pretty significant crisis over the last little while. Uh, what it means fundamentally to be a, a CPA is shifting because of automation and AI. And so um, they wanted an event that was really designed to bring their members together along that thought process, kind of uh, get a feel for where they were at in terms of like, it, it was basically an event designed for change management. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, your whole identity is shifting. This has different implications on different demographics. The skill sets that you're going to need in the future are entirely different, you know, rather than a top down approach of here are the things that you need to, to know and do. Let's work together to talk Talk about what those skills are. So we were, uh, we designed a, a you know extensive survey that went out uh, to the organizations we were working with, and we built the session discussions around those. And we had these targeted questions that we were asking the attendees along the way. So the data after was insane um, from from their membership. And so this was the methodology that we were like really uh, honing in on. And then mm -hmm. COVID hit. And suddenly we were getting like nonstop. I remember the, the day that the South by Southwest conference got canceled, my inbox uh, was blowing up with messages of like, can you help us? People were associating us with virtual conferencing. Right. Um, so it was, can you help us? So, so for a while, it was like the, the technical skills that we needed to um, that we needed to uh, get really good at, which was a means to the end of these like, ch you know, change management events was the mm. thing that we were being hired for. So uh, at this point, uh, what, what we, the way that we scaled, because we were being hired for subject matter expertise and we were a team of five and uh, our demand was way higher than, than we could do. So we really had yeah. to, uh, within eight months, we went from five to 50. And so um, are you recruiting friends at that point or are you like people that you knew or are you just going out well, on LinkedIn? It was, a, it was a really good time. I, I hate to say it, but uh, there was a lot of talent on the market at the time. There were a lot mm. of uh, a lot of companies, unfortunately, that were letting people go. Um, so one thing that we've been very fortunate about is just like this incredibly passionate, talented group of people. Um, and so the, the way that we kind of scaled the expertise is building these success teams that have a, a specific um, focus. Like we have a, a speaker success team, for instance, that is training speakers of, of the specific conferences, helping 
um, helping schedule out the uh, recordings with our production team of, of the sessions. And so we, we've kind of, um, we've kind of grown that way. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I can't even remember the, the original question that I'm answering. <laughs> no, we, that's what we wanted was the whole laydown of it and, and kind of how that came to be. But yeah, so then things just exploded with COVID as everything was moving virtually and you guys just really had to expand your team from then on. Do you have, have things settled a bit? Do you feel like you've gotten your footing at all or was it still just like, you know, kind of madness and always felt like you're catching up to it? It was the way our HR person articulated it for a while. It was like we were a toddler that was constantly outgrowing our, our clothing. Um, and, and that was, I remember, you know, as we were growing, uh, realizing that like every, for, so just focusing in on HR as an example, it's like mm. every decision we made had, was setting precedent, had this ripple effect, you know, there, there was, uh, following a, like chess had to be played so many moves further in advance when you have a team of, uh, of 50 instead of five. Mm. And they say that at about 25 people in an organization, whatever the culture is with that 25 tends to kind of solidify. So in some ways, you know, so we didn't just stumble, like we, we leapt over 25 and, and kept going. I was going to say, you guys just, <laughs> you guys did a hard stop at 25 and we're like, we can't hire 26. We have to figure out who we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in some ways it was, it was great because, you know, our, the, the priority through this, I really didn't want the scenario where we all woke up um and we're like shit i don't sorry for swearing i don't know oh, like, you're fine yeah you're good <laughs> totally that too. yeah you can do um, it realizing that uh that this thing that we started that we were passionate about i was so afraid that it was going to get ahead of us and we were going to stop enjoying um what we were doing because we started this because we were passionate and excited about it and excited about the communities that we were working with and so uh the thing that i'm proud of most in all of that was was that the the culture that was there at 25 and that continued to leap forward uh, has been a really, really positive one. Oh, that's huge. There is. And, and in some ways, so we, we recently made the decision that we would be a uh, work from anywhere company. So we will never be um, having everyone in an office. We're going to remain mm-hmm. indefinitely remote. Um, kind of fitting for a virtual company. Well, that, that's kind of it. And, and one of the things actually that's been kind of neat is, is we've been realizing that, that in many ways we're our own test case. You know, there have been so many times where we've, we've gone and experimented with different tools, for instance. Um, we've tried it on ourselves first. And I would say the thing that we're absolutely uniquely good at is uh, events that are designed to build community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've, we've looked at uh, employee engagement with our own team through that very same lens. And what do you think you've learned from just working with the team of four from founding to all of a sudden having a huge expansion and 50 people underneath you? Like what, um, I guess, what do you try to emphasize or what skills did you try to develop once that team really expanded? So I would say the biggest difference for me personally uh, was leading the leaders. You know, in in that time, we um, trained up a, a management team. Uh, there was a period of time that was hell because it was we were training the managers, but we were also having to um, lead everybody. I, mm. I remember that was definitely the most stressful. It, it was a very short period of time, um, but really recognizing, you know, rather than uh, rather than I, I'm I'm struggling with my words, but basically 
realizing that it was an ecosystem that we were needing to build. And so the only way to, to effectively scale um, was to scale the leadership, was to, was to lead our leaders essentially and, and have them mm -hmm. ready to take on things um, at different levels. Uh, and, and you made the joke earlier about hiring friends. I actually, that's, that's true. I have, I have friends in the organization. I have family members in the organization. So that was one of the things. Like, <laughs> You're like mom and dad, come on board. We're, this is we, a rocket ship. Like, yeah. 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 Low-key, my mom did help us with our accounting over the summer. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. awesome. When we were underwater. Lucky, lucky for me, my mom's a CFO. But uh -huh. uh, but no, but, but one of the... So that was amazing on, on one side for a bunch of reasons. But on the other mm -hmm. side, like things were coming past my desk, so to speak, that I shouldn't have heard about or, um, you know, been pervy to. So mm -hmm. it was... Uh, so so that was that was also I would say one of the one of the big lessons is is uh, keep that separation of of church and state a little bit and mm -hmm. make sure that things are are going through the right channels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And can I ask, uh, were you hesitant to curse just because it's a podcast in general, or because the name After School Program sounds very innocent? <laughs> <laughs> it was just a natural instinct, you know. Uh -huh. I, I actually swear quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I asked because just on last week's podcast, this guy was like, and already had set drop the f bomb. And it's like, well, we're already we're too late. We're you know, <laughs> we don't need to apologize. I uh, I read an article that people who swear that it shows authenticity, you know. So mm -hmm. yeah, and intelligence <laughs> too. That's, yeah. that's why I curse all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just made that up, but there you go. You can. But look like how Smarty looks saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> What's the most interesting group that you've had on there have you had any like peculiar groups do a virtual meeting um interesting so i would i'm always interested in um different uses of the of the virtual space like that mm -hmm. was one major expansion like the, the most obvious ones that we were doing were uh the the kind of converting a face-to-face -face conference uh, into virtual. And a lot of those events, honestly, were quite uniform in terms of, you know, recording their education sessions. And those sessions are generally worth continuing education credits uh, within their professions. And so people are paying a certain amount to attend and they're receiving mm -hmm. a certain amount of credits for the sessions. Like it's pretty, uh, pretty linear, but every once in a while, we, uh, we've gotten events that are just uh, radically different and are really pushing the bounds of what people, uh, what you think can be achieved virtually. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that I get the most excited about are the ones that are about uh, co-creating knowledge. You know, one of the things that I think the virtual space can do a really good job at is um, getting the input from a lot of different people about things. So uh, in, uh, an example of a project we did, it was actually with um, the same the the CPAs, but we mm -hmm. did this a year later because we had basically done this whole futuring project, and then COVID hit, and it was like okay, everything that we just learned, we now need to rethink um, because in eight months their digital transformation as a profession um, sped up. Uh, they say that five years, you know, when when they were all saying right. uh, that that the change was happening so quickly, boom, now eight months um, or five years in eight months, basically. Right so now, my grandpa can use. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had to re we had to redo uh, we had to redo the initiative, and mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we did with them 
um, that uh, that I think is is probably one of the most interesting use cases virtually. Uh, we held a session with them that was it was two speakers, one um, a futurist and the other an expert in the accounting finance space. And so the whole session was about um, identifying trends and turning trends into opportunities. But what we did along um, the the timeline of the event is we paused the video every so often and we put a question up for the chat. And so um, uh, an example of a question, you know, what uh, actually the most powerful question we asked was uh, what future opportunity are you most excited about? This was asked at the very end of the uh, of the session, which was powerful mm -hmm. because in a moment of change management, it's so easy to to look at the negative. And so right. it was such a positive framing of, of what's happening next. And so uh, in that moment, we got 200 responses uh, to the question and, and we mm -hmm. did this whole data analysis where we took the the answers to the question uh, and we uh, divided them up into themes and we basically handed them those themes and said, these should be your next conversation topic. Topics. And so we did, this was a, a series. And so yeah. we did, this was the opening session. And then the rest of the series actually used that as the, the guide, as the, the content um, of, of the discussions that were taking place. So it's like, it's a, a feedback loop, you know, as, as yeah. we're learning what, what people are, are thinking about and looking to solve for, okay, now let's, um, uh, let's, let's have those be the future conversations that this group is having. Right. right. Yeah. Because when you said futurist, I was like, <laughs> I was kind of picturing a guy where he's just like, all right, so yeah, picture your job, but if aliens come, then what do you guys do next? <laughs> well, I don't think that's what a futurist is. It? It's <laughs> not, not quite that sexy, I, I will say that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool because then it just kind of keeps snowballing. I'm sure then more people want to pack into those conversations and, and really it can just help lead to some solutions within their industries too. We're, oh, absolutely. And, and actually, to that point, um, another project we're working on now that I'm um, uh, that I love, it's uh, it's called Veterinary Visionaries. And uh, it is a it was spearheaded by uh, a partnership with the American Animal Hospital Association. And so they went out and kind of offered to apparently there are like 200 veterinary associations or something crazy like that. Mm. Like every state has one oh, and all yeah. these specialties. That's and a, that doesn't sound helpful. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of problem solving in silos and a lot of mm -hmm. the same problems that are being problem solved in silos. So this was, this was about, Hey, can we, can we bring these associations together and their memberships together to solve some of the major problems this profession is facing? Cause they are facing some, some major global issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we're designing with them is basically a, a solve event is what we've been calling it. And so it is a event of design session. They're, they're doing a bunch of research in advance and honing in on um, some specific uh, defined challenges. Mm -hmm. And so this event, it, almost like a hackathon, is the closest thing I could, uh, closest parallel I could draw, but yeah. uh, they're, they're wanting to basically activate a community of solvers uh, in, in looking at unique ways of, of uh, you know, overcoming these challenges. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and their first step into that is gonna be uh, this event with us doing it virtually. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's a cool then bringing in multiple organizations together like that. What what are some of the problems that veterinarians are facing if you can think of them? Yeah, well, retention um is the kind of the the broader 
word that they're using now retention in some cases it's it's uh burnout people are that it's hard to keep people in the profession um it is an inherently uh lonely job it's also very emotional a lot of people go into the profession because they're passionate about animals right. and part of their job is euthanizing animals right um unfortunately uh suicide is a major challenge in their profession as well oh my gosh um, yeah. and, and cited actually as i think one of the top two um that they're that they're facing and so uh, i think it's amazing that the the leadership of the profession is looking at those and and mm -hmm. really wanting to uh activate their their community to uh to solve on a on a broader scale right yeah yeah i i didn't even really think about i mean that's like saying you're a people person and then um being a uh What's it? What's it called when you undertaker? Yeah, being an undertaker. Yeah, <laughs> that's where you were going. Yeah, <laughs> got got dark real quick. Yeah. Um, could you maybe talk about um, maybe like emotionally what you were thinking and going through when the pandemic hit? Because you must have had a, a range of emotions and thoughts in your head. Because here you are starting a company, and all of a sudden you're hoisted into this pinnacle part of, you know, our society, we, everyone's trying to stay connected during COVID. And uh, you must have been, you know, part of you must have been like, Oh, my God, here's a huge opportunity, even though it's a terrible, you know, situation we're in. But can you maybe talk about like the range of emotions you were going through then? Yeah, uh, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, so the South by Southwest, everything changing at that time, that event being canceled, that was on a Friday. And I sat on my couch for 48 hours in distress. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, what, I would say... Were, what were you distressed? Like, were you just... So, did you feel the storm coming for you guys? Like a good storm? Or were you just wondering what's, what's going to happen here? So I would say that there were kind of three themes uh, in, in my head at the time. Uh, the first was survivor's guilt. Honestly, I knew what this was going to do to the events industry. I knew what this was going to do to the world. And I knew that this was going to be a positive uh, for me in, in my life and, and in my organization. And I felt really, really weird about that. Yeah. So it was kind of overcoming the survivor's guilt and realizing like, no, we actually can do something really important right now um, to, to help. Uh, and, and to your point, help people stay connected. Right, because uh, when events happen like this, it's, you know, humans are problem solvers, right? I think when it comes down to it, we like to solve problems that we're faced with. And here's a huge problem. And this is like what your company is built for. So you must, I mean, the pressure, it must have felt a little bit pressure, a little, little awesome, like here we go. This is, this is going to be it. This could be huge for us. Yeah. And so the, um, and, and uh, to that point, so the, the survivor's guilt, then there was also, um, you know, the practical, how do we scale, you know, kind of thinking like, what are the, what are the choke points? Uh, I remember on, by Saturday, 5 p.m., we had a partnership with a production company because I knew that that would be the first kind of scaling um, issue is, is the session production, for example. Mm -hmm. So it was like practically solving for that. And then um, the third was kind of what I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, company culture and, you know, realizing I've heard just story after story of companies that grew too quickly and really lost their it's just, you know, as condition, and I, I see, I see how it happens. I mean, as conditions are changing and you're solving for what's right in front of you, uh, sometimes it can be really hard to see the bigger picture of where things are going. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so that, that third thing, uh, line of thought was really, how do we, 
um, how do we avoid that avoid that outcome? And, and I should say it really in the positive is like how do we um, how do we create the culture that we want the organization to be? Because this definitely um, do do you two know the expression crossing the chasm? Mm-mm. I've yeah. heard it. And I've so, always said I understand what it means, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, Khan says it all the time. Yeah. But he uses it yeah. in so many different contexts. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. think. Well, Going to the Phillies game, gonna gonna cross the chasm. <laughs> not for your sake, because you guys know. But for the listeners' sake, I'll explain uh, crossing the chasm. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> if you if you look at a, uh, a technology, the adoption curve, you know going from uh, early adopter all the way. So there's early adopter, early majority, late majority. Oh no, sorry, sorry. Innovator, early adopter, early majority, late majority. I was majority, about to say, well, you missed one. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> so if, if you look at that, uh, um, uh, if you look at adoption, uh, a lot of um, innovations are at risk of failing uh, going from early adopter to early majority because the language that early adopters use doesn't resonate with early majority. So uh, in our first year of business, the, the first organizations that we worked with were early adopters. They were excited about us because we were new, because we were different, because we were doing something that no one had ever done before. And these were guys who were like sticking their necks out. I remember there was one um, organization that wanted to work with us who uh, asked their board, brought this concept to the board, and the board said no, it was too risky to do a virtual conference. And he spent all night, it was a retreat, he spent all night putting together this white paper of like why we have to do this. And, mm-hmm. and this was somebody who had like major, major influence. This was the CEO of, uh, of the association and right. still had to go through all those hoops. Mm-hmm. And But so the, the language of those early adopters uh, is they're new, they're different, they're innovative. And that's not what the early majority wants to hear because they're the ones who are more risk adverse. And so we were at that point. Um, we were at the point where we had appealed to those early adopters and, and it's in associations are not typically known for, for being early adopters. And so we were kind of, um, we were, we were facing some risk there. And so COVID kind of threw everyone across the chasm basically, mm. um, because then everybody had to, uh, had to virtual conference at once. Right. Yeah. And just figure it out on the fly. Dang. With our help. <laughs> With your help. Yeah. yeah of right. Yeah. With, With your guidance, virtual but of help. course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what makes for a good virtual event? Well, um, it depends on the outcome that you're looking to achieve. Uh, I'll, I'll answer the question uh because I, I was deeply in it today, I'll, I'll answer for a very specific use case. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are uh, actually working with Amazon. It's a small segment of their employees. Uh, it's, it's a department, I guess, for lack of a better term, that is very dispersed geographically. And so uh, they wanted an event that's designed to bring their employees together, to get to know each other a little bit more, unwind, have fun. And so... Um, uh, in, in their particular case, uh, one of the outcomes is a lot of mixed interaction. Um, so, you know, at, there's a part of it that is kind of entertainment. There's a part of it that is, okay, let's create specific activities. 
um, for like a, we love ourselves some virtual scavenger hunts, for example. It's like a nice way for people to get to know each other and, you know, you can give them some practical questions that they, they um, should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And What's so a virtual the, scavenger hunt then? So it's like a scat. <laughs> I don't know how to say this without it sounding patronizing. It's like a scavenger hunt, but online. Duh. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, sorry. I should have tr- crossed the chasm on that one. <laughs> it's it's basically, you, you know, you put people in teams, you give them a list of things that they need to go, like trivia questions they need to answer or um, photos they need to take together, you know, take a photo and like a selfie with a plant or hmm. um, my okay, favorite. Okay. So it was some task. Okay. Yeah, outside, yeah, like yeah, in there. Yeah. Because I was like, yeah, go run across the street and go grab a rock and bring it back. Go, go cut the grass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is, yeah, <laughs> we, we can move past that. But yeah. <laughs> the, the way, the way that I, I've been kind of conceptualizing uh, event design now, it's like Lego blocks and um, different Lego pieces for different desired outcomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of, let's say, an employee engagement event, you know, maybe you want to start with having everyone uh, together in one place on video so everyone gets a sense of the full community. Um, you know, is this a, if this is a group that has never met before, you're going to have to do activities that are a lot safer, um, that aren't, uh, that don't pull people too far out of their comfort zones. Um, or if you are going to go that route, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, it's volunteer basis, right? There are some who are going to be more extroverted than others. Uh, and then, you know, once you have everyone have that, uh, greater sense of community, maybe then you're, you're having people go into smaller group discussions. Um, maybe there's a specific type of, uh, educational content you want that group to participate in. So then you move them into a session, uh, that is a, a pre-recorded kind of video session where they have a chat where they're, um, they're writing into. So, yeah, I guess uh, our, our, uh, we, we had started to, to fathom of different session types as recipes. Mm-hmm. So we have this thing that we call the Matchbox Kitchen, which has a series of, of recipes of different um, session types. So mm-hmm. what we do with a lot of our clients is we'll, depending on uh, what they need for their event, we bring them what we call the taster menu, which is basically a, uh, you know, different suggestions of these recipes based on their desired outcomes. Um, we actually have a version um, that uh, is available to like to check out those recipes as well. Um, mm. If you have show notes, you can- Oh yeah, yeah, we can definitely plug those in the show notes for sure. Yeah, people but, can uh, check out the different ones because that, yeah, that is super helpful where they're like, all right, I just want my employees to get together and have fun. And you can be like, all right, well, we've been through this a bunch of times. Like here are some different options you have for you. Exactly. So every time, because one of the issues we were facing was that there were so many different things that we tried that worked really well and or didn't work really well, which would which would not become recipes. But there were tools that we've used, kind of approaches that we've taken. So we're like, okay, how do we suggest these to people without it being really overwhelming of like, you could do this or that or this. Um, And so the recipes was a way of really refining uh, those concepts and being able to say, okay, you're trying to achieve X. So here are three recipe suggestions. Um, You know, it's very typical, for instance, in a lot of these virtual conferences that they want, you know, maybe three sessions total that are uh, uh, virtual networking 
Uh, you can't, for those who can't see me right now, I'm putting it in quotes. Virtual networking is, is she's uh, not, she's not, she's not, she's lying to you. She meant it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you, how do you gauge the success of your virtual events? Do you, I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of feedback, but do you have someone who monitors the events? Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you determine whether, okay, that worked or this didn't work? So it's a great question. Uh, and it's definitely going to depend on, uh, the specific event. So, uh, and, and what they were trying to achieve out of it. So mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, uh, of one that we just recently did a, a very deep, uh, data dive into. We, we have someone on our team, uh, that's pretty much their entire job is that after an event, they're going to go in and they're going to do an analysis, um, of, of the event, uh, based on certain metrics that we're interested in, mm -hmm. uh, especially in areas where we're kind of, it, it is new ground and new territory. So, uh, the biggest one, you know, one of the hairiest problems to solve in the virtual space is how to, how to deliver value to sponsors or exhibitors. So a lot of events that were canceled, you had these major expo halls, for example, and uh, to be able to deliver, you know, virtual exhibit halls basically was a was a major challenge to solve in the virtual space. So we really wanted to take a data driven approach to that and really see like what what's working and what isn't. So mm -hmm. the metrics that we were looking at um, uh, number. So uh, the the event that we were looking at is an event uh, called Demo Days. So it's kind of an, an interesting. Thing. The fact that it works is actually very exciting, but it was an association that sold demo slots. So what they what they do is they have uh, demo days that are themed. So it's a, a very specific technology product category. And uh, so all of the companies that are demoing are, are of that same category. And it's a category that a lot of their members are, um, uh, it's B2B. So they're, they're looking to buy um, all at the same time. And, uh, and so the, so what happens, it's literally an event where every half an hour, it's a new company that's demoing, that's paid to be there to demo. And they're able to get actually an incredibly high number of attendees. So for them, it's like, they're basically printing money, uh, yeah. with this. And so we're, we're helping support the event. And so the, the metrics that we're looking at, you know, we're, we're seeing, okay, over the course of the day, um, how many people attended each demo, what's the average watch time. We were trying to figure out where there's some patterns of the demoing companies in terms of um of their presentations to be able to, you know, where there's some, for instance, if they had a, an unusually high average watch time, like did they do something differently? Is there a best practice that we can pull out of there to suggest to future uh, demoers? Ariana, you had in your LinkedIn, a, in your bio about you trying to be an entrepreneur as a child. Could you yes. talk about that little story? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I, I would say one of the things I've been, uh, really lucky to have are, um, uh, family members that understood my destiny, I guess, when I was very little. Uh, and, and for context, my mother is an entrepreneur. My grandfather is, my great grandfather is, um, so it's just like, you know, a part of how I grew up, but 
I was always being encouraged uh, to try different things and ideas. Uh, so the, the story in my LinkedIn profile was my first business. Another thing I am actually putting in quotes right now because I was seven and uh, it was called Rent It. I didn't actually have anything of value to sell. So I decided to just rent my art supplies. And so uh, I, I put out a table you know, had all my all my art supplies, and uh, I made a dollar fifteen in a day. Score. Except, except the thing that's not in the LinkedIn profile is that the dollar of that dollar fifteen came from a kid who was like six years older than me, who was like, "Oh, you're so cute," and gave me a dollar. And my mom actually made me give it back. She's like, oh. "You didn't earn that." <laughs> so you made fifteen cents your first day. Then. <laughs> yeah, you will not make money on your looks, Ariana. Go give it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different so, kind of business. Uh, so um, then, you know, later on, my my grandmother, for instance, I remember there was one summer we had a neighborhood pool, and uh, I forget, I don't even know if it was my idea, it very well could have been hers, uh, to sell snacks at that at the neighborhood pool. And so she really approached it as like, we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna teach Ariana how to start a business. And I was like, probably nine or 10 or something and like half into it. Um, so the name was Rayhack Snack Shack. And nice. she, she literally, so we went and we bought a dolly and she explained to me, it was $35. And she explained to me, Ariana, this is a loan. I'm going to pay the $35 and you are going to owe me $35. So we got this dolly to be able to transport the food. And then we literally showed up to like a, a chips wholesaler. I imagine we looked absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> My grandmother and like nine-year-old Ariana. <laughs> um, and we got a good deal on chips and soda. And I remember her being like, listen, legally, you have to have the nutrition facts. So we're going to cut the nutrition facts from the bag and, and keep it in a little Ziploc. And then I remember at one point walking uh, uh, with the dolly and a neighbor being like, oh, you need to have nutrition facts. And my grandmother being like, look at this. Here somebody, it is. So wait, somebody actually said that to you? Yeah. Oh, no. come on. Yes. Yeah, so to a nine-year-old. Oh, so, yeah. Come on. Where's Sue. the nutrition? They're chips. How healthy yeah. do you think they're yeah. going to be, lady? Right? And there were a bunch, I remember there was a, there were a bunch of construction workers and, and my grandmother was like, go sell, go sell the lemonade to them. And I was like, no, grandma, I'm scared. She's like, I'll do it. And she marched up and made like three bucks for React Snack Shack. Nice. Um, and so, so that was kind of my, uh, my childhood. And, and by the way, that $35 loan, I was not mm. able to pay it back and it stressed me out for You're still months. in debt to her yeah, to what's, this day. What was the interest rate on that? Did she that went <laughs> like on? 2000. Could, could have been, right? Be ridiculous. So actually, I don't know how old you are now, but I know you know you're a long way from 9. Well, she's dead. So uh, <laughs> No, so the the following Christmas she recognized that this was stressing me out. So the following Christmas she actually released me. That was my Christmas gift. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm going to owe me. I released you. What a great move on her. Did part. she say like, I released you too that's intimidating <laughs> it was a formal letter it wow. was uh, it was up on the christmas tree i remember that's but, cool uh, i like that yeah so i was always i was always kind of encouraged to do these types of things uh, mm -hmm. as, I, as i was growing up and had like various level of interest in in doing them mm -hmm. and then i saw when when you got to college it looked like you were doing a lot of financial assistant work as internships is that correct yeah, so when I, I graduated uh, high school a year early because I uh, was very excited to get out of the house. Mm. <laughs> and Well, get out of the town that I was in, I really should say. Uh, and so when I started school, um, I guess, I, or, like oh, when did you decide you wanted to 
leave early then? Was it like junior year? You're like, I got to be out of here by next year. Or was it like you went into high school just like, I want to bounce as soon as I can. So I had lived a couple years in Montreal, so in the city, and then I was brought to a town that, uh, back to the town that I grew up in, which was a small town, and I really missed Montreal. And so I was like, mm. what's the fastest way to get back? And so I think pretty much my first or second year of high school, I had figured out that it really wasn't that hard to do it in three years. So I, mm. uh, I pursued it, um, and it, and it was easy. It was classes in the summer and study hall. Um, uh, the study hall time blocks. So it was no big deal. But uh, so I, I graduated and uh, decided that I wanted to be financially independent as quickly as possible. And so I just stumbled into that, uh, that job. I was hired as a temp. Um, it was actually total nepotism. My aunt worked in the stock brokerage firm and they needed a temp for the summer. It was awful. I was literally, I was digitally transforming their files, which meant like literally taking photocopies of files to go online that summer. Yeah. And, and there was a, a stockbroker uh, who worked there who at the end of it decided to hire me on uh, as his assistant. But really, so he was 72 years old and he mostly just kept this job, I think, because he... Um, uh, didn't want to retire and be home with his wife, who was really scary. Mm. She was never nice to me. And so he basically, like, a big part of that job was honestly just keeping him company and, like, calming mm. him down when technology did something unpredictable, which was fairly often. Okay. And then... Uh, but but toward the end of that, so you are uh, kind of working in these <laughs> integrating people with technology. There, you're switching <laughs> over digital files, you're helping out an old man. That's true. That's uh, that's absolutely true. And and bringing the human element to those things, I, mm -hmm. I guess I'll I guess I'll say. Right. But um, but then actually, I got poached away by um, two other brokers, and that was. That was actually kind of interesting. It was, uh, so first of all, I was their second assistant. Mm. Um, but my main job, they, uh, I, I was doing investigative work on an insider trading case. I was helping them uh, with the case that they were doing. So that was actually mm -hmm. uh, quite interesting. Yeah, I was about to say, that um, sounds cool. awesome. Yeah, what, what's the telltale sign of an inside trader? Well, so I was actually hired on the defense. Like they were, I mean, mm. this, I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to, to go right. into it. So I'm going to be careful, but mm -hmm. um, they were. Say their they, full names and what they did. <laughs> addresses. Yeah. I, I have. Social yeah, security I have, numbers. Well, I can, I can tell you one thing. I definitely have their numbers deeply memorized because one of the main <laughs> things I was doing was looking at phone conversations at different times because um. uh, the regulatory body had basically put together this narrative of, um, you know, th this person spoke to this person who spoke to this person. And so it was about sort of disproving um, all of that. Uh, wow. So, so that, uh, that, that it, it was a job. They were great. Um, when, when the case was over, they said, we will literally pay you to just sit at your desk, um, continue to be our second assistant, which sometimes means literally uh, refreshing on eBay for my daughter's reindeer gift that she wants. Like sometimes that like literally they'd be like, stop the case. This is really important. You have to go buy Sandy on eBay, just as all the stereotypes about, uh, I don't even know if there are stereotypes about second assistants. Is that even on anyone's radar as, as a thing? Uh, but, no, I haven't um, crunched the metrics. <laughs> I'm across the chasm on that one. We'll, there we go. Back to there nice. we go. Get I stopped. I stopped my laugh because I knew that was coming. I didn't yeah, want yeah, to take yeah, away yeah, your punchline, yeah. Connor. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> That's good. We're a good team here, guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I I was doing that, and um, so they were offering me basically like 
you know, they were, they were loyal. They're like, okay, the case is over. Most of the work is done, but you can continue to this, continue to do this. You can um, uh, follow finance. Like you can actually, if you're interested in that side of it, you can dive into that more. And I was really not interested in that side of it. And I had just graduated uh, university. I also, this isn't on my LinkedIn, but I was um, bartending at a sports bar at the time. So I was doing both jobs while in school. And so all of a sudden I graduated school, this, uh, the brokerage job kind of slowed down and I was just bartending. And I was like, so that, that was the case for about six weeks. So I was like, this, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. So uh, I actually on a whim bought a one-way ticket to New Orleans. Um, Why uh, New Orleans? Because it's a super cool city. Uh, mm, I had been years really. before and it, it uh, I, I thought I wanted to be a writer at the time. I thought that was the path I wanted to take. And it just felt like a very romantic place to go and write. Like so mm-hmm. many interesting people right. and, and you, things And going you said on. you loved Montreal and, you know, there's a big, you know, French oh, right. uh, connection between Montreal and New Orleans for sure. Yeah, so I I just really felt like I need to shake up my environment, really wanted. I, I started, um, when I arrived in New Orleans, I realized that I wasn't writing. So I realized that's not what I wanted to do. So uh, what I was doing is I was actually looking at job postings and I was trying to have no preconceived notions of what I wanted to pursue. How did you um, come to the conclusion you didn't want to write anymore? Because I, cause I wasn't doing it. Um, mm-hmm. what, I, what I've come to realize is that I like, uh, I... I I am passionate about communication. I'm, I'm passionate about writing, for instance, when I'm writing to achieve a certain purpose. Um, I love writing emails, for example. Like, that's weird to say, but I, I love the idea of, of needing to convey a message and then there being action on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I've never, for instance, had a journal. Um, actually, I have a ton of journals where the first page is, is written in of, like, I'm going to journal now, and I just <laughs> never did. Because yeah. there's no one to read it. There's no, you know, there's no uh, uh, quote-unquote purpose for it. So, um, so I wasn't writing. and uh, But instead, I was looking at job posts things and trying to draw some sort of parallel uh, as far as what I was passionate about. Um, You know, what parts of the job postings uh, sounded interesting or exciting. Um, And so, uh, and so I ended up working actually in a marketing firm, speaking of, Mm -hmm. uh, of communications and, um, and the marketing firm was a sister company of uh, the organization that I then ended up started running, which was the digital publication and, and online community. Okay. And yeah, so I guess you do the, you do the marketing and then when did you start realizing you wanted to be involved in like community engagement? So I think I, I honestly got quite lucky that that's what, uh, what the job ended up being. Mm. Um, the marketing firm, actually, the original relationship with that organization, besides being sister companies, is that uh, I was hired on retainer as a community manager. So it was my job um, uh, as part of a larger job to grow this community, grow this publication. And um, I really fell in love with it. And, and one of the reasons I did is I, I started to realize the power of collective knowledge 
that you know you can ask a group of people a question and and if you know what to do with their answers you're going to get something so much more powerful and meaningful than than what any individual can provide and so it became like an absolute obsession to find different ways of doing this well and and meaningfully and um and being able to problem solve on a on a larger and, and larger scale so um our uh our approach and philosophy within uh within Matchbox, uh, as far as our staff, is very, very similar. Um, we uh, we haven't done we 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 have dropped the ball recently. I'm realizing, but previously, actually, once a week we were running internal design sessions. So mm-hmm. we would take a, a challenge that we were facing, and we would uh, it was optional to anyone on the team who wanted to attend. And um, we would lay out the challenge and then basically for an hour, we, we kind of uh, perfected a, a specific methodology that later became actually a session type that we do for our clients, um, which was basically a collaborative brainstorming um, to, to solve the challenge. And so, yeah, so that is the like underlying philosophy that guides me through, through all of this um, is that the group is going to be more... Um, more powerful and and Mm -hmm. also it is an engaging experience to be part of that problem solving. Um, You know, my my experience, for instance, the best virtual networking sessions uh, uh, that we have are are actually like that, are ones that are, you're getting a group of people engaged to actively problem solve. And so the networking is a byproduct uh, of the conversations that are happening because you're intellectually interested in solving the same problems. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really cool that you guys will do that analysis on it afterwards or put it into the eBooks. I mean, that's really got to drive the point home and kind of keep them around for next time too. Yeah. And, and I would say it's, it's powerful for people to see like that, that was one thing we learned about producing uh, the eBooks after is especially having uh, parts of the eBooks that were, uh, you know, quotes from people, let's say, or answers to specific questions. Uh, people feel a sense of um, ownership when when they're uh, involved in, and connected in, in this way. So it was actually a very organic way of growing uh, the event community because people would share the eBooks with their friends. You know, they were excited right. to be to have been a part of this thing, and and it was the eBooks were were this um, shared memory that was being captured. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So now I guess we've got just a few more questions for you at the end here. Um, is there anything that you would tell yourself in high school at this point? Uh, yeah, life's going to get so much better. <laughs> yeah. I, I define basically 17, like life started at 17, basically. <laughs> I, I did not have uh, much of a sense of purpose before then, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a very inherently social being and that, that kind of came out later. Yeah. Not, didn't come out selling the chips. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I was too afraid to go sell them. <laughs> Is there anything you wish you had known earlier? Yeah, I would say that um, certain problems seemed uh, like a much bigger deal than they really are. Um, and over time, as obviously as as you gain experience, as the problem that you're solving is on a larger scale, like I look back at the things that were keeping me up at night 
two years ago. Uh, and, and part of it, hindsight's 2020. Like I know that it all worked out, but um, knowing that it all worked out or that, you know, a, a pivot that needed to happen did happen, or, you know, I was able to ask the right person for advice on the right question, et cetera. It just kind of makes you put into perspective over time that um, any, any little thing that comes up is, is really no longer going to be an issue mm -hmm. uh, a week later for, uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And is there any advice that you'd give to um, whether they're a student or a young adult trying to figure out their career path? Maybe they were someone who thought they wanted to be a writer and then now they're kind of like back to square one. Yeah, um, I guess a few pieces of advice. I, I know that the, the nature of the podcast, I, I don't know what the average um, age of, of a listener would be, but I'm really glad that I worked through university. So mm -hmm. having those two jobs, having to juggle um, many different things and having and simultaneously developing different skill sets uh, was really uh, helped me a lot and, and definitely jump started my career. You know, when I started uh, applying for jobs outside of school, I don't remember in, in the interview, I don't remember answering any of my questions from the perspective of school. It was the perspective of the work that I had done so far. And so mm -hmm. I think I definitely uh, was way more prepared to do this. Uh, the other thing I would say is it was really valuable to take the time to really un to to focus on um, applying for the jobs that I was really passionate about. So the one that I got, uh, I actually I remember reading the posting and it like spoke to my soul. It was like, this is exactly what I need to be doing. And the job actually that I applied to, I was really underqualified for. They wanted mm. 10 to 15 years of experience in marketing. They oh, were man. They were literally- where'd you, where, where'd you get, like, get the confidence to apply to that? Well, uh, somebody told me once, I don't know what I can't do. Mm, <laughs> so I great. just, so I, I, I read it and, and I knew that I, you know, that it was, it was unlikely, but um, I, what I did is I researched the person who um, wrote the posting and I, I tried to mirror his, um, his language and his tone. And it was easy for me because there was a reason it resonated with me. It was a very similar tone to mine. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spent three hours on the cover letter. Um, and so, I mean, that's my, in a nutshell, that's my big advice is if you find something you really want, um, write a, write a damn good cover letter um, mm -hmm. and, and put in really, really like, rather than applying uh, for a hundred jobs, apply really really well for three or whatever and so yeah. he actually he called he uh emailed me the same day he's like to be super clear you're not at all what i'm looking for for this job but i really want to meet you <laughs> um so i was not hired for that job but uh every, once a month he would email me and say still thinking about you and then four months later he said we have the perfect job for you and he was right because uh, it, it is what led to to what i'm doing now yeah that's great yeah, and it helped that you not only mimicked his tone, but showed up dressed like him too to the interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I researched him super, super well and showed up in that, in that big old blue. Uh, showed up with his favorite chips. You knew exactly <laughs> what kind of chips he wanted. With his hair. He's, he's yeah. like, these are 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. How long have you had these? <laughs> these Fritos taste stale. What was the worst failure that you had, and how'd you turn that into a positive? I mean, I'm sure it's yet to come. I mean, that's, mm. that's a deep, 
<laughs> That's a deep answer. I mean, I've never I, failed in my life, and I never intend to. <laughs> there, there hasn't really been anything profound yet because right. uh, I think that for better or for worse, we're a very reactive team, um, and so we're, we're we we pivot where we need to. Um, starting Matchbox, I mean, we got—I hate to say it—but we got lucky in the circumstance uh, right. and I uh, one of the realizations that I've had is that the hardest is yet to come mm. um, every stage of it was hard for a different reason but like you know we're, we're coming up to a time for instance where uh, a lot of these conferences they're going back to face-to-face and so it's a very different market out there um, and now that market we also have a ton of competitors coming from different angles so we have te- their technology platforms there there are uh, production companies. There are mobile apps that pivoted to virtual. I was going to say, what were your thoughts on like the augmented reality kind of virtual meeting spaces? I know there's some of those coming out, right? Um, so a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that. Um, I, so my my take there, there are a lot of things right now digitally that just tried to replicate the face to face environment and kind of the the approach that that we've been taking is that actually there are so many things virtually you can do that you can't do face to face so let's mm-hmm. lean into those so a lot of it feels honestly very gimmicky um some of the augmented reality stuff there's some interesting stuff in terms of um uh making the like transforming the buying experience for example which isn't quite in in our space Mm -hmm. uh where where we started to see gimmicky experiences were things like um you know virtual spaces that mimic a physical environment where you're zooming around and all of it well i shouldn't say i shouldn't use the verb zooming (laughs) because zoom is so uh, ubiquitous but Mm -hmm. you're moving around in this virtual space and then all of a sudden you're in a video chat with a real person and it can be very daunting and so you know we were we've experimented with all sorts of those kinds of tools and uh, I find that a lot of them it's like they've taken uh, expo hall uh, virtual expo halls in particular it's like they've taken the worst parts of the face-to-face experience and replicated those online mm-hmm. um, so they're I like I, waiting in line for 20 minutes to get the ticket just to get into the virtual expo hall <laughs> <laughs> well and honestly the sales the the um, uh, I saw I saw some environments where you would see this avatar going crazy and it was like the salesperson that's trying to talk to you and then when you get close <laughs> to them like boom you're in a video chat with them yeah. like, I I want that in the sponsor hall. <laughs> yeah. I'm avoiding eye contact. Yeah, that's the guy no. I avoid in video games. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think the ones that are gonna um, get, so so I, I say this. I'm I'm speaking from a place of scarcity, but truly, what just happened over this last year is people saw that virtual can be done, can be done well. There are certain things that that work really well, and so that's kind of our main focus right now. Is you know what are the um, uh, what are the bright spots virtually? What should continue to be virtual? Uh, some things really shouldn't be. Award shows, we did quite a few award shows. It is mm. not fun to win an award. It's just not the same to win an yeah. award. Virtually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are plenty of uh, really incredible ways to to use uh, a virtual environment and to reach people around the world. And um, you know, there are associations that saw member bases that they had never heard from before because for once uh, they were able uh, to access what was uh, what they had to offer. So I think we'll continue to see a lot of virtual. 
Absolutely. I think so too. And, and good luck to you and, and Matchbox and your, you know, and to all the other employees that you guys will probably be bringing on as things continue to go well. But yeah, I just want to say thanks a lot for coming on, Ariana. This was really cool hearing your perspective on on this and especially for such a young company that just, you know, talk about being in the right place at the right time, you know, and just kind of working through those circumstances. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Ariana Ray Hack, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of After School Program. You can check out Matchbox Virtual Media at matchboxvirtual.com. Make sure to follow us on social media at ASPPOD. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow and bring in new listeners. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.